Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Lord is great in Zion, the mighty king, lover of justice. He has established equity. He has executed justice and righteousness. Let us pray. Almighty God, we gather this morning to hear of your steadfast love, to hear of your sovereign power and rule, and for your great salvation in Jesus Christ. And we put our trust in you. Come among us by your spirit. Make your word known to us. Teach us the way we should go. For to you do we lift up our soul in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our first hymn is number 88, With Grateful Heart My Thanks I Bring. can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from sin? It's a rhetorical question, the answer is no one. So we confess our sin together. Let us pray the prayer in the bulletin. Almighty God, long-suffering and of great goodness, we confess to you our neglect and forgetfulness of your commandments 
our wrongdoing, thinking, and speaking, the hurts we have done to others, and the good we have left undone. O God, forgive us, for we have sinned against you, and grant us grace to walk in newness of life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. The Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you who have faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation. I declare to you that all those who do have faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. We rejoice in this good news and we say together, praise be to God. And now, brothers and sisters, remember that in Jesus Christ you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a dedicated nation, a people claimed by God for his own. These are epitaphs or, or uh, titles for, um, that God originally spoke and gave to Israel. But now, this is from 1 Peter, now the, with Jesus Christ, the people of God has been expanded to include us and those those uh, epitaphs, those descriptions apply to us as well. Indeed, God has made you his people in order that you may proclaim his glorious deeds. For this reason, the apostle says, I appeal to you to avoid those desires that make war on the soul. Let your conduct among unbelievers be so good that although they may malign you as wrongdoers, if they reflect on your good deeds, it will lead them to give glory to God on the day when he comes in judgment. Submit yourselves for the sake of the Lord to every human authority. Live as those who are free, not, however, as though your freedom provided a cloak for wrongdoing, but as those who are in God's service. Give due honor to everyone. Love your fellow Christians. Reverence God. Honor those in authority. For this is God's will for us in Jesus Christ. And let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 310, Rejoice the Lord is King. Rejoice again, I say. 
and bow to his command and fall beneath his feet. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, Let us bring our prayers to our Heavenly Father. O Lord and Father of your blessed people in Christ, our Lord and Father, through him, we thank you for the gift of faith inspired by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for having called us to yourself, for consecrating us to your service, for setting, having set us apart to the sacred ministry of prayer. Our Father, we pray for our enemies, for hostile people who disturb us, for selfish people who would take what we have, for rude people who hurt us, and maybe people who've done worse, for people who disrupt the church's worship, vandalize its property, try to shut it down. Lord, we might call these people our enemies, and yet you teach us to pray for them. Hear our prayers. For those who have less than we do and those who have special needs, for those who suffer any sickness or weakness, we pray you would give them health and strength. For those who are disturbed and troubled, we pray give them rest and wisdom. And to all who are lonely and alienated, give fellowship and love. We pray that these would not just be abstract descriptions, but real faces and people would come to mind. And as they do, hear our prayers. For those who are in captivity, who are forbidden to see their families or live in freedom, for the church in those lands where it is unlawful to worship you or where the church must endure great persecution, we pray for them. We pray for the Christians in Iraq, Syria, Palestine, Iran, Egypt, North Korea, Myanmar, China, and those who live near drug cartels that often try to um, extort or... or uh, control the church and the Christians. We also pray for the end, the end of the war in Ukraine and that you would hold back the nations from war. Hear our prayers. Almighty Father, we pray for the leaders of our country, for Joe Biden, our president, Gary Peters, Debbie Stabenow, our senators, Gretchen Whitmer, our governor, and our state representatives. Grant them wisdom and moral discernment for what is right and what is wrong. We pray for good moral order, justice, and peaceful protest when it's appropriate. Give the church freedom to preach and teach the scriptures so that we may serve you in this country. We pray that more and more people would have a greater awareness of at least your transcendent presence 
but more so of who you are, the triune God revealed in Jesus Christ. Here are our prayers for our nation and those who lead us. And now we pray for the church, O gracious God, in all its breadth and humanity, in its pride and worldly power, in its simplicity and silence, in its poverty and weakness and foolishness and unbelief, all of which is part of the church here on earth. We pray for the church in her many parts, for strong churches and weak churches. As you have raised us up in Christ, give to your church true humility, faith, unity, obedience, and the courageous proclamation of your word. Here are prayers for specific churches that come to mind. We pray for the missionaries of the OPC, for Sam and his wife, Un Su Folta, and Mike McCabe and his wife, Lil, in Asia, and also for the churches in this presbytery, for Redeemer OPC in Ada, Michigan, and their pastors, Jeff DeBoer, Dan Adams, Jonathan Lowrup, and for New Life Fellowship in Holland with its pastor, Martin Novak. Here are our prayers for the OPC, its missionaries, and these ministers. Our Father, whose hand upholds us in the grace and love of Jesus Christ, tend to this church and our friends. Grant your healing mercy and grace to those who live in the midst of difficulty. We pray for Luca and Eduardo, for Julie, for Fawn and Jeff, for Frida and Tammy's family. Also for our friends Becky, Angie, Phil, Dominic, Tom, Bob, Chris, Karen, Gladys, and others we name to you in silence. O Lord, we also pray that you would give us unity and wisdom as we seek to to discern how we should go forward as a church. And for all those who are discouraged, resentful, hurt, or who have failed to obey you, we pray for your grace to give them the counsel they need, the power to forgive, the strength to resist temptation, and the willingness to obey. Help us to love one another and comfort each other according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we bear witness to him outside the church. In the name of our Lord and Savior, we bring our petitions as he taught us when he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
Please be seated. And please join with me in praying for uh, illumination as we open God's word together. Lord our God, we thank you for this morning, for drawing us here, for calling us to worship you, for loving us individually, for loving and caring for this uh, church congregation, and we Uh, As we open your word this morning, we pray that you would be with us, that by your spirit you would open our ears and open our hearts, that we may uh, hear and understand um, what you have said, and that it would live in us in the days and weeks to come. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 through 49. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought, brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be, what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what it is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king... And behold, a great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, 
its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them would be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they may dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom, inferior to you, shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, and shall bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell down upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Our Psalter response this morning comes from Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call. My God, be not to me. Lest, if you be silent to me, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I lift up my hands, do not drag me off with the wicked, who speak peace with their neighbors. Give to them according to their work. Give to them according to the work of their hands. 
because they do not regard the works of the Lord. He will tear them down and build them up no more. For he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. And with my song I give thanks to him. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Our epistle reading this morning is a change from what is printed in the bulletin. Uh, so not First Peter, but First Timothy. And that'll be chapter 6. So First Timothy 6. First Timothy 6, verses 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge to you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Finally, our gospel reading comes from the gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The word of the Lord. Christians live under governing authorities. You live under governing authorities, and all Christians have. Politically speaking, there are different forms of these, but whatever form they are, we must live under them. Scripture has much to say about the people of God living under the governing authorities. We heard a little bit of it um, in uh, our epistle lesson and, of course, in Daniel. It also has something to say about the governments themselves. Christians have had different experiences under their rulers. Living under governing authorities has been tranquil for some Christians. For other Christians, it has been harsh and dangerous. In the United States, Christians have lived under a series of governing administrations that have operated according to the same constitutional structure. The form of government in this country is not just about the president, of course. It also involves the Congress and the Supreme Court. We've had 
46 presidential administrations from the founding of this nation. Each president has had an administration, and over the years, the office of the president with his administration has taken on more power. Christians have different opinions about which presidents they think have been good. Some have liked presidents such as Roosevelt, Kennedy, and Clinton, and others have liked Eisenhower, Reagan, and Bush. You can sort of discern the two parties there. Most of the administrations of governing authorities have been friendly to the Christian church. However, lately that has been changing. We are becoming a post-Christian society, and that is reflected in the governing authorities of this nation. For example, we, have been, we are being ruled with ideologies that in many ways run counter to historic Christian faith and moral practice. And because they're ide- ideologies, they're being forced on Christians. That's sort of the nature of an ideology that it's something that's being imposed on people. And in our case, it's being the reigning ideologies are being forced on Christians. I was talking to a friend who works for a government in another state, and he told me that every employee employee has to take DEI training. DEI stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusivity. This is all tied to the growing identity politics in our society that demands everyone affirm their definitions of gender identity and sexuality. Governments, businesses, and institutions are requiring DEI training if you want to work for them, if you want to have some kind of position with them. The governing authorities are pushing this on society, and it has become onerous for Christians. One governing administration follows another, but more and more they seem to be building a post-Christian society. It's not, it's not like all the, across the board like that, but it is definitely starting to take some form. We need wisdom from God for how to understand this. We need wisdom from God for how to live under this governing authority. And we need need to listen to God's word from Daniel. Now, if you will recall, last week we heard that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he was deeply disturbed and desperate to learn its meaning. For the purposes of preaching, I have divided that story or this, this chapter into two parts. So last week we heard the first part, and this week we heard the second. Last week the sermon was based on the first part. The king had a dream, and it was of great consequence. He, he had some sense that this is a, a very, very significant, important dream. It required interpretation, and the king demanded the Babylonian wise men interpret it. In Babylon, the interpretation of dreams was more or less a science, The various guilds of wise men, sages, sorcerers, magicians, and Chaldeans were data collectors. They collected the images and actions in the dreams and recorded them on tablets. Every dream was collected, as as many as they could find were collected, and the details were written down. I described that last week. Eventually, this data was turned into what are called dream books. And some of those books are in our museums. There's a museum connected to Penn State that has some of these uh, what they call dream books. The wise men sorted through these dreams, and they collected dreams not only from the important people, the people who were deemed important in society, like the kings, the priests, uh, the rulers of those type, but also the common people. If they found a dream, they collected that data, and they compiled it. And then they connected those dreams, or the details in those dreams, to notable or strange events in the heavens and on earth. 
They also use the advantages of hindsight to give meaning to the detail of the dreams. So, for example, if the dream had a figure in it looking to the right, and I'm taking this from an actual uh, dream uh, uh, reference data in one of these dream books, but if a, in a dream, if a figure is looking to the right, and soon after the dream the person's enemy died, then the Babylonian wise men would put these together and come up with the interpretation that if, if there is a figure in your dream looking to the right, it might very well mean that one's adversary will die. And that is one of the interpretations that's in, in these dream books. Once this interpretation is recorded, then the wise men could refer to it when another dream came along with a similar action in it. Now, if you're sorting through and collecting all these different kinds of dreams from all kinds of people over many, many years and generations, that's a lot to remember. So it was written down, and it was stored and recorded, and these, these um, wise men were very good about going back and be able to find what uh, the interpretations had been. Now, of course, I've made it a little bit simple. It's more complicated than that because there are other details in the dreams, and I'm sure that affected how the dream would be interpreted. But this is the way they did it. The Babylonian wise men had what you might call data-driven wisdom. Now, we might smugly grin at their superficial practices. I actually started thinking about those uh, palm readers, and I think there's one at... uh, 11 and a half mile and, and uh, Greenfield, and there's a little building there that, that advertises tarot card readers and palm readers and people like that. Um, that's kind of what came to my mind, and so it's easy just to, to smile at that and go, oh, that's so silly. But such wisdom is not all bad. It's what we might call natural wisdom, wisdom that comes from experience, practice, and reflection in this world. It's been called common sense, insight, and discernment, and it helps us in daily life. Now, we may disagree with how this was collected in Babylon, but the basic idea of wisdom that comes from practice and experience and reflection in this world is not a bad thing. Common sense, insight, discernment is good. And often, it's for small little things, like saving time and money. Experienced carpenters and seamstresses share this wisdom with us, and I learned this early on, measure twice, cut once. You've heard that probably. That's just basic, good, natural wisdom. It's wisdom that comes from practice, and such wisdom helps people live well in society. And that's a small way, um, unless, well, it used to be a small way until you start buying pieces of wood that are extraordinarily priced. Then you do want to cut it once. But the Babylonian wise men and the king wanted wisdom for understanding the course of history. That's a little bit different. What will happen in the future? The large-scale hidden things of history and epochs and rulers. That's the wisdom that that, um, was necessary there. And the problem for them was that this wisdom does not come from data collecting. This is wisdom that must be revealed by God because only God has it. Daniel prayed to God for this wisdom, and God gave it to him. And at the end of our lesson last week, Daniel gives thanks, gave thanks to God because he does reveal this kind of wisdom. And at the end of our, our lesson, our reading last week, at the end of, of, of our part of uh, the first part of Daniel chapter 2, um, was this prayer. 
This wonderful prayer. There are a lot of prayers in the book of Daniel, and we need to pay attention to them. Daniel's prayer was this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He gives deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise For you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. It's verses 20 through 23. The God of Israel revealed the hidden wisdom for understanding the history of this world and its regimes. And he gave this wisdom to Daniel and the prophets and from them he gives it to us. You are receiving this wisdom now as you listen to the um, of what Daniel said. And this is why we continue to read and listen to Daniel, because we need this wisdom. We don't just need natural wisdom. We need this revealed wisdom from God. Furthermore, God has sent his son Jesus Christ to us, who is, uh, to us who is our Savior and is the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God, who reveals to us the purposes of God for the history of this world. We can see the, in Christ the wisdom of God comes into its fullness. Now, this morning, the wisdom that God gives us centers on that massive statue in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And I I try to find the right words, the right adjectives, and I always think I come up short. I cannot understate the massiveness of this statue. Daniel identified the image in the king's dream. He said, you saw, O king, and beheld a, a great image, and then Daniel describes it. So I want us to stand back together for a moment and take it in. It's a gigantic statue. It's enormous in size. It towers far above us. With the scripture, we can see that it is an image of a man or perhaps a god that uh, would have been recognizable in Babylon. We can look way up to the top and see the huge head, and then we can scan down to the feet. It is imposing. It dominates our view. The humongous statue has five sections. There's the head, the chest and arms, the torso and thighs, the legs, and the feet. It's, just, it's mentioned in verses 32 and 33. But what catches our view is its material composition, what it's made of, precious metals. The head is made of brilliant gold. The chest and arms are made of lustrous silver. The torso is made of bronze. And you think to yourself, this is a valuable statue. The statue also has a strong metal in it. The legs are made with iron. And the feet are partially made with iron. See, iron is hard and durable. It can crush and smash things. Daniel describes the image in the king's dream as mighty and exceedingly bright in verse 31. Bright because of all this precious metal. Now, if I worked for Marvel Entertainment, I would make an action figure of it and try to sell it to those children right there. <laughs> would you like to have a statue of this that's being described in Daniel? You can talk to your parents about it later. There might be some money here. All in all, it looks majestic and precious. This much of the statue is rather flattering, but the feet are bizarre. They're made of clay mixed with iron. The feet are compromised by the clay. There we stand looking at the statue when suddenly there's a rock and it does not appear in a natural way. It's cut out by an unseen hand and it falls on the statue. It shatters the whole thing. 
And this is probably what frightened King Nebuchadnezzar. It's a strange dream. It is a disconcerting dream, especially if you have some idea that it's about you and your kingdom and that there's wisdom hidden in it for the history of regimes and rulers in this world. But you see, it needs interpretation. It's not that natural kind of wisdom. It's that wisdom that only God has, and it has to be revealed. It needs interpretation. The king could not interpret it for himself. The Babylonian wise men, who were well-studied in dream data, did not have the wisdom to figure out the dream and its interpretation, and not even Daniel could comprehend it. He says to the king in verse 30, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all of the living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king. And then he says in verse 28, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made it known to the king. God gave the interpretation to Daniel. Starting at verse 37, Daniel tells the interpretation to the king and to us. It's about four regimes. The word is translated, that word that's, that's, that I am using as regime is translated in, um, after verse 37 as kingdoms. But it has much flexibility in the book of Daniel, this word that's translated as kingdoms in the ESV. In Daniel, the word translated kingdom can denote royal authority, it can denote a realm, it can denote an individual reign or an empire. So it's got some, some diversity to it, some flexibility. In this dream, it is best to translate it as the reigns or regimes of kings who reigned in a single empire, that is the Babylonian Empire. It's best to understand that what's being talked about here with that word, kingdoms or regimes, are these reigns of kings that came after Nebuchadnezzar. And that's because Nebuchadnezzar is the head of the whole statue. And all the other parts come beneath him. The other regimes are under him. And so therefore, it is best to think of them as regimes in the empire, one following the other, a succession of regimes coming out of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, some commentators, and you may have heard this on Daniel, prefer to understand them as separate kingdoms or empires, such as you have the Babylonian kingdom, the Mede kingdom, the Persian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, and possibly the Roman kingdom. But that's to get ahead of the book of Daniel and to read later chapters into this dream. And there's nothing in this dream to indicate that the kingdoms are other than successive regimes that follow from the head, which is King Nebuchadnezzar. The number four is symbolic and represents the successive regimes that came after Nebuchadnezzar. There were actually five rulers in Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar, or from Nebuchadnezzar to the last. The last one was Napanidus and his son, who was Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the regent ruling for his father, Napanidus, when the Persian ruler Cyrus came and defeated Babylon. And it is possible to identify five regimes in this dream if we take the division of the, of the feet as two different regimes. And I'm not trying to get into this too much, but I want you to see, um, because of other interpretations, I want you to see that this is probably the best way to think of it. Nebuchadnezzar's empire was huge, and it ruled over much of the Middle East at the beginning of the 6th century. It conquered and dominated the other kingdoms in the region, including Judah and the Jews. And it was an empire known for its power. And it was an empire. And it was known for its power. No one could stand up to it. 
Its strength crushed its opponents. Nebuchadnezzar's empire was also known for its culture. It had these huge stores of knowledge, not to mention, you know, not the least of which was the, the, dream, uh, the dream collection. It was famous for its gardens, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Um, whatever those were, I, don't, I think they're trying to still identify them and figure out where they were and all. Um, but they're famous for these gardens, and it is, has great literature, like the epic story of Enuma Elish, which is required reading in many schools today. And it had notable art that can still be seen in museums today. The British Museum in London has a great display of Babylonian art. Daniel tells the king that all of this was given to him. God gave it to him, says Daniel, and this great power and culture continued through these regimes in Babylon that came after Nebuchadnezzar until the Persian king Cyrus came. The interpretation jumps from the head to the feet. As mighty and as brilliant as the Babylonian empire was, it was flawed. Its iron was mixed with clay. And long ago, in the Iron Age of civilization, people learned that iron must be mixed with the right alloy to become strong. You can't just dig up iron from the earth, mine it, and then heat it up and, and, and try to you know, separate it out and heat it up and form it together, and it's, it's, suddenly it's iron as we know it, strong and, and durable. That's not how it works. It needs the right alloy to become strong. So they experimented with the forging of iron and discovered that adding carbon to iron ore when heating it up made the iron hard and durable. By itself, iron is brittle, and it's too soft to use for weapons and tools. Everyone knew that you do not mix iron with clay. If one intended to produce a strong metal, you didn't do that. The clay stands out in this dream. It just just sticks out, especially to a culture that did a lot of work with iron. In the dream, the king saw iron ore mixed with soft clay in the statue, verse 43. An enormous, brilliant, and as enormous and brilliant and strong as the statue of the Babylonian kingdom was, it had a serious flaw. Daniel says it will, would be broken into pieces and come to an end. So even though it looks impressive, we have set back, we've scanned it from head to feet, we've looked at this thing, it's massive. Even though it's impressive like that, it was fragile and breakable. It was like an egg, and it would not last. It was unstable because of the flaw of the clay in its feet. And indeed, in the dream, the statue is shattered and broken by the rock. God gave Daniel wisdom to interpret this flaw in the statue. In verse 44, it says, The regimes of Babylon will come to an end. There's wisdom in that. The weakness is that they will only last for a time and then they will be gone. All these regimes, all this impressive uh, empire will only last for a time and then it will be gone. The kingdom of Babylon did not have the strength in itself to last forever. Here's the wisdom that God gives us with Daniel. The weakness of Babylon is the weakness of every empire, kingdom, and political regime in this world, including the government of our post-Christian society. They are weak and transient. They do not have strength built into them that makes them stable and permanent. 
Think back over history relying on the wisdom of God given to Daniel or with the wisdom that God gives to Daniel. Think back over history. Think of the empires and the dynasties and the kingdoms and the regimes and how each one of them ended up shattered and broken. The Roman Empire in the West collapsed in 476 A.D. when the Germanic chief Odoacer deposed the last Roman emperor. The Ottoman Empire grew in power in the 1300s and became one of the most powerful states in the world in the 15th and 16th centuries, but it was officially dissolved in 1922. France, Spain, Germany, Japan were once world-dominating powers, but their power unraveled, and today they are much weaker versions of their former selves. And currently, the United States, China, and Russia are the most powerful regimes in the world, but their strength is tenuous. The wisdom Daniel teaches us is that all of them are unstable, fragile, and not permanent. This is wisdom, and it's in our lesson from Daniel, but it doesn't seem that hard to discern. Why does that have to be revealed? Wise people can study history and see that regimes and kingdoms do not last. Wise people don't put their stock forever and ever into one particular government. It is the full interpretation of the king's dream that gives us the wisdom that only God can give. It's the full interpretation, not just that part. God is the one who breaks the ongoing progression of regimes in history. It's God who gives rulers and regimes their power, and it's God who breaks them down. In verse 37, Daniel says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. That's revealed wisdom. God gave it to you. And at the end of the interpretation of the dream, Daniel tells the king that the Babylonian kingdom will be broken in pieces by this same God. The wisdom that comes from God is that he does this. Historians can tell you plenty of reasons why a regime can come crashing down. It might be because of better technology that comes along. You have guns and missiles. I have bigger guns and faster missiles. It might be because of a revolution of ideas or large disparities between classes of people. Maybe it's because of mass migration. Only God's revelation tells you that he shatters the rulers and regimes of this world. It's not from some kind of divine fate or some kind of God that we make up. It's the God of Israel who is the creator of heaven and earth who does it. In the king's dream, God cuts out a rock that destroys Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. That rock for Babylon was Cyrus the Great. He was the Persian king who marched against Babylon in 539 B.C. Isaiah says that the Lord stirred up Cyrus and gave him victory at every step. And you can read about it in Isaiah 45. We hear what God says about Cyrus in that chapter. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and ungird the loins of kings. And then the Lord says to Cyrus, I will go before you and level the mountains. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut asunder the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hordes, the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. The Lord cut out Cyrus and sent him crashing down upon the regimes of Babylon. And with Cyrus, God interrupted that succession of Babylonian regimes, the regimes that came one after the other following from Nebuchadnezzar. And Babylon, the authoritarian governing authorities, stopped with Nebuchadnezzar and his son Belshazzar. 
and Nebuchadnezzar's empire had no more regimes after that. It lay in pieces on the floor of history, or as Daniel uses the analogy in his interpretation of the dream, that it became like chaff and was blown away by the wind. This is the wisdom that God gave to Daniel to interpret the king's dream, but God has enlarged it in Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the rock. That is how the Apostle Paul identifies him in his first epistle to the Corinthians. He talks about Israel in the wilderness, and he says, They all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. One of the favorite psalms quoted in the New Testament is Psalm 118, and the line in it that says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And the New Testament writers identify Jesus as this stone. They also use the language of Isaiah to refer to Jesus as the stumbling stone, the rock of offense upon which God is building his kingdom. The rock cut out by God in our lesson from Daniel may also be applied to Jesus. So in the immediate context and world of Daniel, it would have referred to Cyrus the Great, but it can be easily carried over and applied to Jesus Christ. The stone was cut out by no human hand. Jesus came into the history of this world by the unseen work of God. He enters this world, and by going to the cross and being raised from the dead, he fell on the kingdoms and regimes in this world, all of them. Therefore, he is called the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus establishes a new kingdom in history, and it's the kingdom of God. He begins his ministry with that proclamation we heard in the gospel lesson. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In the king, in, repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's begun. It's everlasting. It's permanent. It's not fragile, weak, and transient. With Jesus Christ the rock, God has broken the succession of regimes in this world. And not one of them will continue whether it's friendly to Christians or hostile to them. God's wisdom promises a new future for us broken from the past succession of regimes in this world. God stops them. He stops that progression, that succession. None of them will continue. There are some regimes that we want to continue. We like them. We've lived well under them. Many Christians long for a president like Ronald Reagan Other Christians want another president like Lyndon Johnson and his great society policies. But whatever our favorite regimes are, none of them will continue. Why? Because God in his wisdom brings them to an end and establishes his kingdom in this world. And that's good news. And this is vexing for a society that's confident in the progress of government. Western civilization has moved from monarchies to democracies. We might say the overall succession of presidents and their administrations has improved society. If you look at the long, long, take the long view of our government, overall it might be said that it has brought improvements to society. So a rosy view of society would say our government is improving life for us. There may be bad policies along the way, but things are getting better. That's what we hear. Statistically speaking, serious crime has been trending down for the last 30 years in our nation. I take all this from um, some things I've read in the Wall Street Journal over the years, where every once in a while when someone talks about how it's getting worse and worse in our country, they like to trot out these statistics. 
I haven't read it in a couple years, but I, I remember these. So they talk about how crime is trending down in our nation, uh, the uh, violent crime. Now, there may be an uptick right now. Everyone would admit that. But it will improve, they say. Life expectancy has increased in this country. Personal wealth has grown larger per capita. The government is assisting more people who need it. People have more freedom to live their lives as they see fit. That's sort of the rosy view of our uh, society. Well, God's wisdom shows that even real progress in society will never become the kingdom of God that's full of peace and righteousness and justice. It doesn't have it within itself to do that. So where Mary's song comes to mind, where the mighty are brought down from their thrones and those of low degree are exalted. There might be some, some little efforts at this, but it will never become this permanent, uh, complete, equal thing by the governments of this world. The progress of the regimes of this world are flawed in themselves. They're like that clay mixed in with the statue. They do not have the power or the wisdom to permanently establish what is right and good and true in this world. Only God can do that, and only he can do it perfectly and permanently. Therefore, the good news of God's wisdom is that he breaks the succession of regimes in this world. He breaks them by changing the lordship of this world. He puts an end to the rulers and regimes of this world, and he gives us Jesus Christ to be Lord of all, who was put to death and raised and will never die again. So the next time you're troubled and despondent about our governing authorities, or you find yourself putting a little too much confidence in them and expecting that to turn out at the, at the, uh, in a vote, take up God's wisdom. He will put an end to them, and his kingdom will last forever. May God give us grace to believe his wisdom revealed to us so that we will not be anxious, but trust him and put our confidence in his kingdom, which will fill the whole earth and will never come to an end. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to make all things new by your well-beloved Son, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, Mercifully grant us relief from the regimes of this world that at their best can only give us a small and uneven measure of what your kingdom gives. And may we bear witness to Christ's kingdom for which we eagerly hope, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please stand. Let us confess our faith with the creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, 
who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn is number 198, Lift Up Your Heads, Ye Mighty Gates. table, those who are accounted visibly among his people through baptism, profession of faith, and being identified in the Christian church. In this meal, Jesus gives himself to us to feed us, meaning that he's the source of our new life with God. Speaking of this reality of the new life that he gives us, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life, and that life begins now for us in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In order to seal the promise of his sustaining us with his own life, 
He instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was arrested, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There are two aspects to this, well, at least two aspects to this meal. One is that he feeds us. Our life is sustained and continues just like you need to eat food every day to, to have a healthy body and to be able to live. So we must be fed regularly by Christ, um, which he does through this meal. He feeds us with his life. But the other aspect is that it is a proclamation. It is bearing witness to the world. We should never forget as we go, as we have our place here in this community, and as we go out into the world in our various callings, we are to bear witness to Christ. We're, we, and that starts here with this meal and listening to his word. This is the Lord's table, and here he joins us together. Those who come to this holy meal promise to trust and love and obey him as the Lord of every realm of life and to live in love and concern for each other. Join with me in giving thanks to God for our new life and our salvation in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift our hearts to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And it is right to give thanks and praise. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, for all your blessings known and unknown, we give you thanks. For creating us in your image and providing all that we need to live in your creation. And for ruling over the nations of this world. But mostly we are bound to praise you for your great love with which you have drawn us to yourself in Christ. And as Paul says, the Apostle says, made us to sit in heavenly places with him. Truly he is our peace, the one who brings us back to you. And therefore, with all the hosts of heaven, we worship and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of the majesty of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Most gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who once offering up of himself upon the cross, we commemorate before you. We pray that you would bless and sanctify to us along with these, your gifts of bread and the cup, which are set before us on this table, that we may receive by faith Christ crucified for us and so feed upon him that he may be made, that we, that he may be made one with us and we with him. And in union with Christ's offering for us, we offer ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice. We ask you mercifully to accept this, our sacrifice, our offering of praise and thanksgiving that we make through Christ, for we dare not try to bring anything on our own. And in fellowship with all the faithful in heaven and earth, we pray that you would fulfill in us the purpose of your redeeming love. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be the glory and the praise, both now and forever. And together we say, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, whoever abides in me, I, Jesus said, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Merciful God, our Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, fed the hungry with the bread of his life and the word of his kingdom. Renew your people with your heavenly grace, and in all our weakness, sustain us by your true and living bread, who is alive and reigns now and forever. Amen. Our final hymn is number 368, The Ends of the Earth Shall Hear.
him strong to do his will, that you may reign with him in glory. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. Please be seated and let's take a moment to look at the bulletin. We have our Christian ed education classes um, scheduled for today. We'll look forward to those at 1145. Um, there will be a Good Friday service at 1 o'clock that day, so plan on that if you're able to come. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So, on April second, we have scheduled the congregational conversation, the discussion about the future of the church. As it happens, a, 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 mo- a point of business has come up, which requires us to call a uh, official congregational meeting for just one item, which is um, to dissolve the call, uh, the call of ministry um, of Adam Ostella to free him to serve um, at our sister church in Brighton. So that's a point of business that we have to call um, a congregational meeting for, for that one item. And uh, we'll take care of that and then get on with our discussion. I mentioned last week that the meeting, uh, proposed meeting, would bump um, our normal fellowship meal, but there's been an uprising. Um, we're, we'll still, we're, it's going to be more if you can, those who can, stay after, uh, bring your own, you know, uh, bring your own fare. Um, but we still won't have the formal meal. However, you're free to stay after in fellowship and and feast. I don't know how long the meeting will be. The next women's prayer meeting is on Thursday, April 20th. That's different than is printed in the bulletin. And then I think finally, from my end, I want to announce that the session the elders have interviewed Amy Lauren and Matthew and Hannah Cassidy for membership in the church and are happy to welcome them to join us um, next Sunday. So we hope to receive new members next Sunday. That's all I have. All right. 
There will be a three-minute warning, a really strict, tight, like a Swiss clock, three-minute warning before Christian Ed. So heed the call.